Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. As Tom and I prepare for part two of our little mini-series here on the birth of Black Harlem, sit back and enjoy the story from our back catalog about the Hotel Teresa, once called the Waldorf of Harlem. And stick around to the very end for a newly recorded section about the hotel's political history during the 1950s and 60s. But how about we start with a little Duke Ellington? The Grand Glorious Hotel Teresa is located at the intersection of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard, or if we're being technical here, 125th Street and 7th Avenue. The building is 15 blocks north of Central Park, a short walk from St. John the Divine, and exactly half a block from the Apollo Theater. 125th Street here is the business district of Harlem. Today, the hotel, former hotel, is the Teresa Towers, an office building catty-cornered to another rather odd building, the Adam Clayton Powell Jr. State Office Building. Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was the first African-American congressman from New York and represented Harlem for over 25 years. In front of the state office here is this spectacular statue of Powell. It's one of my favorite statues in New York. His coat is blowing behind him like a cape, like he was some kind of superhero. And in fact, for many people, he was. The Teresa opened in 1913, but I'm going to begin this story just a few decades further back from there. Harlem would become one of the great centers of American culture, a neighborhood identified with African-American arts and politics, but during the early part of the 19th century, it was just sparsely developed with manor houses for the wealthy. Its topography little changed since it was first developed as a village by the Dutch in the 1600s. The village of Harlem was carved into blocks by the Commissioner's Plan of 1811, and travel to this little area, which was quite distant from the city down south, of course, well, it improved with the development in 1831 of the New York and Harlem Railroad. But it wasn't really until the construction of the elevated trains in the 1880s that people really started moving up to this area. But back at this corner, the southwest corner of 125th and 7th, people anticipated the arrival of money with theaters and department stores being developed up and down the street. In 1888, a six-story brick hotel called the Hotel Winthrop was built at this spot. Now, the only story of interest that I was able to personally dig up about the Winthrop was in 1894, when a prominent real estate broker, who was staying here one night, well, he took a little sleepwalk down the hallway one night and right out a fifth-story window. With the opening of the New York subway in 1904, more people would arrive in making Harlem their home and work, still mostly white families at this time, but so many that the Winthrop was quickly deemed as inadequate. So in stepped a man named Gustavus Seidenberg. Gustavus, with his brothers, was a successful manufacturer of men's collars and cuffs and lace accessories for women, like gloves and veils. With this collars and lace fortune in 1912, 
Gustavus decided to tear down the Winthrop and build something a little bit more extraordinary, something more downtownish, if you will. 1912 was a banner year for New York City architecture because just downtown, the Woolworth Building was going up, the tallest building of its day. Both the Woolworth and the Hotel Teresa here would open the following year, both featuring pale, sophisticated terracotta in its design, both completely dominating the landscape around them. The Teresa was built by the firm of George and Edward Bloom, best known for their stylish Upper East Side apartment buildings. In fact, the Hotel Teresa would be a 300-room apartment hotel. Similar to the other hotels of the day, like the Chelsea and the Netherlands, the Plaza, hotels that offered both short and long-term accommodations. An ad in the New York Tribune called it, quote, a refined family and transient hotel with unexcelled cuisine, perfect service. The Hotel Teresa opened in the fall of 1913. But who is this mysterious Teresa? Well, Mr. Seidenberg had not one, but two wives named Teresa. Teresa I died in 1910, and the following year he married Teresa II. It's a convenient name for a hotel then, because then nobody gets jealous. The Teresa was called high class and, quote, a noteworthy improvement to the neighborhood, quote, by the New York Times. What may not have been immediately evident to the Times, or to Seidenberg for that matter, was the incredible change in Harlem life that was just about to occur. In southern United States, the enforcement of Jim Crow laws and the cruel, insulting treatment of African Americans by whites forced thousands to move from the southern states into the Midwest, out to California, and mostly to the Northeast. The Great Migration, as it's called today, changed the face of major American cities as black families settled into affordable neighborhoods in urban areas. Harlem became attractive due to its cheap housing outside the denser neighborhoods of lower Manhattan, and soon the neighborhood became a nucleus for black New York life. Imagine what a jolt it must have been to have thousands of new residents in one place with shared cultural experiences, to thrive and develop an alternative to a hostile mainstream, and of course, right around the time of the Jazz Age. The writers, artists, and cultural icons of the Harlem Renaissance, the political ideas of W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey, the, the churches that moved uptown, the nightclubs, and the speakeasies that thrived at night, Harlem became New York's largest black neighborhood, but it easily became a cultural force itself that was known all over the United States, all over the world. By 1930, almost 70% of the population of Harlem identified as black. However, many of the businesses in Harlem and those on 125th Street here, well, most were still white-owned. While the spending power of African Americans certainly eased policies in some places, many were steadfastly segregated, and that included the Hotel Teresa, all the way up to 1940. There's a very ugly reality about New York City in the early and mid-20th century. There was this undercurrent of segregation that kept people removed, cut off from a great many of New York's finest restaurants, theaters, and hotels. These were standards of conduct that were openly derided when they occurred in the South, of course, but were no stranger on the very streets of a city that would later pride itself in its diversity today. The finest hotels, including the Waldorf Astoria and nightclubs like the Store Club, had restrictive segregation policies, spoken or unspoken, well into the 1950s, even as they would hire, say, black musicians to entertain their white patrons. 
Many places were governed by this network of unspoken social custom. In fact, the legendary Cafe Society in Greenwich Village, a club which often featured the talents of a young Billie Holiday, made headlines for being one of the first integrated clubs in 1938. Then 10 years later, of course, Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Baseball's color barrier as a member of the Brooklyn Dodgers. So this is the world that we're dealing with here in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Simply put, the Hotel Teresa was in the wrong place to be upholding such a ludicrous practice. Management put up a fight. In 1937, the heirs of Gustav Seidenberg were sued by two African-American guests who had been denied rooms. It didn't make any sense, really. By this time, many white-owned businesses had moved out of Harlem, and there was a real demand for a high-end accommodation for black guests at this point. Rich African-American businessmen and women, tourists, celebrities, musicians, often whole orchestras of musicians, were outright rejected or at least certainly not welcomed by downtown hotels. Something had to give, and fortunately, it was management. They relented, dropped their segregationist policies, and even hired a black manager to operate the hotel. Little by little, black celebrities, shunned by other hotels, made the Teresa their home for sometimes months at a time, creating the atmosphere of a true place to be in the city. Soon, others who could have stayed elsewhere instead chose the Teresa. It quickly became known as the Waldorf of Harlem, although I would personally say it sounds a little bit more fascinating than the Waldorf might have been at the same period of time. After all, the Teresa had to contain a diverse group of people. Showgirls, wealthy tourists, actors, athletes, socialites, politicians, even gangsters. In just 300 rooms. The hotel was booked for months in advance for most of the 1940s. Holding an amplifier to all of this was the thriving black press of Harlem in the 1940s, and in particular, the Pittsburgh Courier's gossip columnist, Billy Rowe, a sort of black Walter Winchell of his day, Rowe reported almost daily about the Teresa from his offices literally across the street from the hotel. Ebony Magazine called the hotel the, quote, social headquarters of Negro America. And Ebony should know, for John Harold Johnson, the founder of both Ebony and Jet Magazines, developed these publications while a guest at the Teresa. The corner of 7th Avenue and 125th Street was a bustle of energy. Guests coming and going from the Apollo or the Savoy, cabs lined up day and night under that divine emerald marquee. What probably caught your eye first was the bar at street level. At least the hotel management hoped that you'd catch the bar. It's an urban legend that the Teresa hired a black bartender named Big Steve and had him prominently serve drinks near the window to let people know things had changed around here. The Teresa's 51-foot J-shaped bar would be packed every night with a handful of celebrities and, of course, a room full of others who wanted to get a little close to a celebrity. According to Billy Rowe, quote, The bar was so crowded, a man could lose his pants and walk the length of the place without anybody noticing. Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, the dancer Bill Bojangles Robinson, and a host of hard-bitten journalists frequented the bar. But if drinking wasn't your thing... Walk over to the Teresa Coffee Shop, where you might see boxer Joe Lewis enjoying his mushroom omelet. Joe was one of the most famous people in America in the 1940s, and he lived at the Teresa during some of his most famous bouts at Yankee Stadium and the Polo Grounds. After matches, whether he won or lost, thousands would flock outside the Teresa, waiting to get a glimpse of the athlete. 
On the evening of June 22, 1938, Joe Lewis defeated the German boxer Max Schmeling, a favorite of Adolf Hitler, and Lewis's victory party was held here on the second floor of the Teresa Hotel. Now, finally getting to the lobby, you can really witness the clash of permanent versus transient residents here. Wealthy, well-dressed tourists following bellboys to the elevator, passing socialites, a cluster of people attending to a big star, say, Eddie Rochester Anderson from The Jack Benny Show, and maybe some less desirable characters, gamblers, or even, in the later years, prostitutes. In the 1950s, you might go up to the desk and speak to a young clerk named Charlie Wrangell, who would later be elected to the House of Representatives. And if you were really lucky, you might see the switchboard operator at her duties behind the front desk, a classy lady named Miss Maddie Jean, written about by journalists and known for her distinctively velvet voice. Now, speaking of class, you might then head up to the mezzanine level, festooned with couches and cocktail tables, where you're surrounded by several shops and offices, including the exclusive boutique of Etienne Johnson, where on that particular day she might be outfitting her clients Ella Fitzgerald or Lena Horne. The club room was on this floor, as was the Orchid Dining Room, an upscale restaurant that hosted literary parties like the one for Richard Wright for the release of his novel Native Son. Down the hall, you'll find the recording studios to the radio stations WWRL and WLIB, stations that are still with us today, actually. On WLIB's debut broadcast at the Teresa on April 29th, 1950, you would have heard live performances by Sarah Vaughan and Billy Eckstein. In 1949, you could head upstairs to the Skyline Ballroom with its beautiful vista of Manhattan and New Jersey. But it wasn't just for anyone. The manager of the Therese at the time, Bill Brown, made sure it was one of Harlem's most upscale destinations. His son, Ron Brown, later said, If you had a wedding in the Skyline Ballroom, you had to be top shelf, unquote. Little Ron here, by the way, who grew up here at the Teresa Hotel, would grow up to become Bill Clinton's Secretary of Commerce in the 1990s. Some of the hottest parties were, of course, going on in the rooms themselves, such as the penthouse suite soirees of songstress Dinah Washington. If those were too crazy for you, and most likely they were, the manager, Bill Brown here, had an apartment in the penthouse as well, where they had lovely gatherings that attracted people like Paul Robeson, and Langston Hughes. In some of the rooms below here, however, something a little bit more illegal was going on, namely a room set up for gambling with five or six tables, the manager himself getting in on a cut. Not surprisingly, gangsters themselves showed up at the Teresa, the most prominent being Bumpy Johnson, an aficionado of the numbers racket, installed by Lucky Luciano as the most powerful gangster in Harlem. 
On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Through the 1950s, the hotel was the site of ladies' luncheons, club soirees, dances, conventions, community and church meetings, and it made frequent appearances in the society columns of newspapers geared to a black audience, such as the New York Age. In a column called Of Men and Maids from April of 1954, quote, Before departing on Wednesday for a brief vacation in Detroit, Jimmy Cox Jr., dubbed one of the town's most fabulous bachelors and best-dressed gentlemen, entertained a group of friends at luncheon in the Teresa Hotel. But the hotel hosted more serious gatherings as well, naturally becoming a meeting place for many civil rights organizations during this period. By the 1940s, labor activist A. Philip Randolph was already one of the most familiar and effective leaders of the civil rights movement, and in 1941, he spoke to thousands of black New Yorkers at Madison Square Garden, alongside Bayard Rustin, to launch the March on Washington movement, a major civil rights push in an effort to desegregate the American military and provide protections against employment discrimination during World War II. The headquarters for the March on Washington movement 
was located at the Hotel Teresa. While no actual march occurred in the 1940s, the movement would transition into the greater civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. On September 19, 1958, Dr. Martin Luther King was in town at a rally outside the Hotel Teresa, hoping to muster enthusiasm for another march, a youth march for integrated schools. Now, a quote from the magazine The Crisis, published a couple months later, quote, At a monster street rally in front of Harlem's Hotel Teresa, King sounded the call. Both major party candidates for governorship of New York State were present and heard the summons, unquote. Now, the day after this rally, at a book signing at Bloomstein's department store, located on the same block as the hotel and actually across the street from the Apollo Theater, Martin Luther King was stabbed by a mentally disturbed woman named Isola Curry. To quote again from the crisis, quote, On his hospital bed, suffering severely from a deep wound, the youthful reverend was concerned about just two things, that the poor, sick creature who had stabbed him should not come to harm, and that plans for the youth march should proceed apace, unquote. The following month, thousands participated in the Youth March for Integrated Schools. And of course, Randolph and Rustin's long-envisioned March on Washington, featuring Dr. King as the final speaker, did finally take place on August 28, 1963. The Hotel Teresa was more than just a backdrop for black leaders. The hotel had already become a quick stop for presidential candidates looking to make outreach to the African-American vote, and a stop not without consequence. Days before he was elected President of the United States in 1952, Dwight D. Eisenhower spoke at a rally in front of the Teresa and had breakfast here with local black leaders. A photograph of he and Mamie Eisenhower enjoying their meal circulated in Southern newspapers as a scare tactic. But perhaps the most written-about visitor to the Hotel Teresa came in the year 1960. Not a black civil rights leader or a U.S. president, but the newly installed prime minister of communist Cuba, Fidel Castro. Castro rose to power in Cuba the previous year, overthrowing the U.S.-backed dictator Fulgencio Batista and embodying a new era of conflict with the United States, just as tensions were also rising with America's Cold War rival, the Soviet Union. In September of 1960, Castro came to New York to speak to the United Nations General Assembly. Several leaders from communist countries were also in town, including Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, and the whole thing demanding, according to the New York Daily News, quote, a massive security operation without precedent in the history of New York's finest for a peaceful, they hope, D-Day with world leaders of the Red Empire. Castro arrived on September 18, 1960. It was initially situated at the Hotel Shelburne near Grand Central, greeted by protesters. However, claiming, quote, unreasonable cash demands, allegedly a $20,000 cash deposit, which Castro immediately took as an insult, well, he and his party of 50 moved up to the Hotel Teresa, allegedly at the behest of Malcolm X. 
Castro stayed at the Teresa for several nights, entertaining a rather pointed list of international luminaries, most of them representing America's rival powers of the period. Harlem here at the start of the 1960s was entering a difficult period of crumbling infrastructure, rent strikes, escalating crime and poverty, yet it would continue to hold a symbolic place of black social prestige and power. And it was in this light that Castro and his guests used the Hotel Teresa to make a political point. Of his own visit to Castro's rooms at the Teresa, Nikita Khrushchev said, quote, By going to a Negro hotel in a Negro district, we would be making a double demonstration against the discriminatory practices of the United States of America towards Negroes as well as towards Cuba. Castro finally gave his speech to the UN Assembly on September 26, 1960, the longest speech in UN history, four hours and 29 minutes. Less than three weeks later, the Democratic candidate for president, John F. Kennedy, would himself make an appearance at the Teresa at a rally in front of the hotel, striking a bold contrast to Castro from his speech, quote, I am happy to come to this historic landmark. Behind the drama of Castro coming to the hotel and Khrushchev coming to Castro is a greater drama. It is the drama of a world in motion, a world in turmoil, a world in revolution. We Americans should not fear Castro or Khrushchev coming here. We should not fear the world coming to Harlem. We should not fear this world revolution of the 20th century. For this worldwide awakening is our revolution, and we should claim it as our own and play our full part. The Teresa was an immensely popular and beloved hotel into the 1960s, but it was never really considered a gold standard luxury hotel. Its fixtures always needed replacing, its mirrors were cracked, the wallpaper and carpet stained from years of celebration and leaks. Khrushchev himself described it this way, quote, The air was heavy and stale. Apparently, the furniture and bedclothes had not been aired out sufficiently, and perhaps they were not, as we say, of the first degree of freshness, or even the second, unquote. The triumphs of the civil rights movement actually hastened the Teresa's decline, as downtown hotels and restaurants did away with race-based policies, and the brightest lights of Harlem began heading back down to the fancier, more well-to-do hotels near the theater district and the midtown nightclubs. Left behind was a neighborhood that was slowly deteriorating and a hotel past its prime. In 1966, the final guests left the Teresa and the famed hotel was turned into an office building called the Teresa Towers. While the amazing facade of the building is intact, its interiors were completely and unspectacularly renovated. The bar, the diner, the radio stations, and the boutique, all these former spaces have been turned into offices and storefront retail. In July of 1993, the Landmark Preservation Commission bestowed landmark status to four significant buildings in Harlem. Three of those buildings were churches, including the Abyssinian Baptist Church on 138th Street, 
where the Reverend Adam Clayton Powell preached before he entered politics. Three churches and one former hotel, the Hotel Teresa. For images of this glamorous place and, and pictures of several moments from its history, please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And you can also find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. The second part in our series called The Birth of Black Harlem will be in your podcast feeds next week. So tune in, stay tuned in, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. <music>